Welcome to the What She Said podcast. My name is Candace Sampson. I am currently in the middle of divorce proceedings, working towards my psychology degree, dating for the first time in 20 years, raising three teenage girls, a senior dog, and two guinea pigs. And in the middle of all this, I thought it would be a good time to buy the What She Said media property. What could possibly go wrong? I've been in the trenches with women across Canada for over a decade now, oversharing on the Yummy Mummy Club, Life in Pleasantville, and on all my social media pages, and I totally do it for the gram. And now I'm coming to you on the radio at 105.9 The Region and on this podcast. Apparently, I have a lot to say. So let's get rolling. Will PTSD be the next pandemic? Alarmist headlines like to suggest so, and honestly, in recent human memory, we have not gone through anything quite like this before, especially for our frontline workers who are grappling with this on a level many of us can't even begin to understand. I wanted to know more, so we reached out to Dr. Caddy Kamkar, a clinical psychologist in Toronto. To name but a few of her accomplishments, she is an assistant professor within the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Toronto, chair of the Canadian Psychological Association, Traumatic Stress Sector, co-chair of Global Law Enforcement and Public Health Association, Inc., and has been part of the Federal PTSD Act Advisory Committee, Public Health Agency of Canada, for the development of the PTSD Federal Framework. To put it mildly, Dr. Kamkar is the expert on PTSD, and she has some interesting insights into what we can expect, how we can be proactive in protecting ourselves, and how we can help our loved ones who may be feeling the effects. Listen to this podcast. I hope it helps. Welcome to the show, Dr. Kamkar. Thank you so much for having me. So I have heard PTSD referred to as the second pandemic for frontline workers once we move on from COVID. Do you feel that that's an alarmist headline or a way of describing it? I think that we certainly need to conduct more surveys and uh, research to have a better understanding and confirmation in terms of, again, any numbers and so on. But I think that what is helpful right now is the recognition and appreciation that, yes, we do know, overall speaking, for general population, we do ha- we have noticed that uh, the mental health needs have been on the rise. Um, certainly also we hear that more and so globally, and it's not surprising as we have seen that through the pandemic, suddenly our personal life, our routine and structure, employment and finances, everything has changed drastically. Of course, it's going to generate a range of emotions and thoughts. Now, of course, for our frontline uh, workers, so health workers and first responders, medicals and so on, it is different as well because it uh, usually, of course, is the exposure to um, upsetting events or traumatic events and also repeated exposure to incidents. But of course, with the COVID-19 pandemic, it's also a bit different, is that not only the exposure to the traumatic incidents, but really I think we need to appreciate that it's also happening in the context of 
extreme pressure. So themselves may be experiencing the physical and emotional exhaustion. It could be also, as we hear, separation from family, the fear of contracting the virus, the fear of, again, of course, spreading the virus to loved ones. And, and I think that he also, when you, is a concern of bringing the threat home, then that means that home is not safe anymore. Um, and, and we know that COVID-19 has been associated, I mean, I have always associated COVID-19 with, with the grief, and grief works on a continuum. And we hear people saying, you know, I miss going out and having my coffee, newspaper, and take public transit, go to the office, to I miss attending those social events and birthdays, or my usual uh, Thursday night events with my friends, to of course the other extreme, the illness and the death of loved ones. And the, with the restrictions, um, the safety guidelines, and the inability to maybe also attend funerals or to be with loved ones during the final hours, and certainly with our frontline health workers, that sometimes we hear around that they had to also help to com the facilitate communication between the patients and the loved ones, and seeing the suffering of the loved ones and how loss and grieving has entirely changed. That can lead to very much a disruption of our moral values and standards and so on. That is why also we increasingly talk about this, this moral distress and moral suffering that uh, is also taking place. Okay. So let's back it up a little bit too then, because when we talk about PTSD, I wonder if people overuse that term. So I would like to maybe define what that is for people listening. How do you define PTSD? And that is that is helpful to know. Um, and that's an important question. So PTSD and trauma, uh, stressor-related disorder, and the most common one being post-traumatic stress disorder, is really um, uh, exposure to um, exposure to threat. Whether it is um, uh, it's it, exposure to death, whether it is uh, threatened death or direct death, and also exposure to um, severe. It could be injury or sexual violence, but also as part of PTSD, it involves so either we are exposed directly uh, to traumatic event to the threat, or we witness a traumatic event happening to to loved ones or family. Uh, but in, in this case, also it needs to be very violent or accidental, and also this repeated repeated exposure to trauma. But then also it could be this intense exposure to aversive details of traumatic events that we often hear, like it could be also vicarious trauma or it could be among, let's say, first responders. It would be collecting human remains or constantly being exposed to child exploitation and all of those things. So we have all these frontline workers right now uh, who have been on, well, high alert. I mean, their, their adrenaline is just running for the last 100 days or so. Uh, and it, and no sign of it really slowing down. What what are these? What are the symptoms we can expect, or the signs we can expect from PTSD once they sort of come out on the other side of this, and it catches up with them? What I always want everyone to know is that when we talk about PTSD, so there are four main cl clusters and there are many sub, uh, sub clusters within each of those uh, clusters. So what that means is that everyone will have his or her own individualized map. For everyone, it could be very different. But the first uh, cluster of symptoms, as we know, it's re-experiencing symptoms of trauma. So that means that, again, when we are awake, experiencing distressing, intrusive memories, that could be thoughts or images 
images of the traumatic incidents. Um, it can also be flashbacks. So flashback is a sense of relieving the event or I'm acting or feeling as if I'm back in the situation, having nightmares. Um, and also it could be experiencing physiological reactions following anything that would be a trigger or remind us of again everything that we might go through. The second part, it's really around um, the avoidance that we call. So avoidance of anything that would remind us of anything that, again, that would be triggering of the trauma. That can also include conversations and uh, people, locations and places. And then the third one, it's really these um, changes or alteration in our mood and cognition. So for example, it would be um, experiencing persistent negative emotions, difficult experiencing any positive um, emotions, emotional numbness, so feeling distant from others. Um, it could also be this kind of we feel that our belief about ourselves, others, or the world has entirely changed, has become very negative and entirely shattered, um, not enjoying any more day-to-day -day activities. And the final cluster of symptoms is the hyperarousal that we often hear. It could be outbursts of anger, reckless behavior, self-destructive behavior. But more often than not, what we hear is the hypervigilance. Constantly, we are on alert, on alert for signs of threat or danger. We might feel excessively jumpy, difficulty sleeping, difficulty concentrating. It's very important to know these are normal reactions. We all go through that after traumatic incidents, very severe upsetting events. These are normal reactions. However, when we experience them um, and when we feel that those symptoms increase over time, create more distress over time, and or interfere with our functioning, day-to-day -day responsibilities and activities, then it could be that, you know what, it's always a good idea to seek consultation just to make sure. Are there risk factors uh, that make you more prone to PTSD than somebody else? I mean, there are, are nurses right now and, and uh, first responders who are all going through the same thing, and some are going to come out on the other end and, and seemingly be fine and cope, and others are going to be uh, hit hard by this. Is there something that makes one person more prone than another? Um, there are, of course, there are individual differences. Nevertheless, we know that when we talk about, generally speaking, about PTSD, we always need to appreciate what we call a whole life approach, meaning that there are pre-trauma risk factors, there are peri-trauma risk factors, and there are post-trauma risk factors. So always we want to have an appreciation of all those. Now, specifically, in regards to everything happening right now, certainly inherently we can all appreciate COVID-19 pandemic has been difficult. Now added to that, you know, as you also uh, mentioned it very well in social aid, the added stress going on, the anxiety going on, the, the restrictions also in their own personal life, the, the, the fear of contracting the virus themselves and, and uh, spreading it to loved ones, the isolation it could be with the family, including how the grief is being witnessed also at work, concern about the equipment, and the high could be workload and the pressure, all of those, of course, is going to activate our overall stress response more often than not, probably all the time. And when the stress becomes chronic, overwhelming, we feel it's prolonged, it's overwhelming, it does make us more vulnerable to what we call burnout. So burnout is a risk factor. The chronic stress is a risk factor. If we feel isolated, definitely it's a risk factor. Constant ongoing fatigue or feeling helpless, 
is a risk factor. And also, as I mentioned earlier, moral distress, moral injury, right? So anytime we might question, did I do enough? Did I do the, this thing right? Or any action or lack of action might that might transgress. A moral beliefs and moral standards can lead to what we call moral injury. Also, compassion fatigue is a significant risk factor as well. So compassion fatigue is more the preoccupation with the traumatized individual rather than the trauma. So it's the intense preoccupation and attention with the emotional pain, physical pain of the ones that we are trying to help rather than the actual trauma. And what's interesting is that the symptoms of moral injury, the symptoms of compassion fatigue, are very similar to the symptoms of post-traumatic stress, but it's not PTSD. It can make us, it can increase the risk for PTSD. So we might have those without PTSD, or we can have PTSD along with all those. But as you said, thank you for asking that. It's the appreciation always for the whole picture, holistic approach here. Well, let's look at it then right now and break it down into sort of two, two different areas. Those that are on the front lines and they're going through this right now, what are, what are some of the things they can do to prevent um, sort of being hit with this um, in a big way? And then alternatively, what are some of the things that family members and friends can be doing to support them through this right now? So in terms of prevention, um, it's, it's because I think that there could be a lot of misunderstanding also when we even talk about prevention. People think that, oh, how can I do to prevent it means that's that thing, it will never happen. Well, that would be nice, but I think that even when we say, well, how can I prevent from ever having a cold? Well, that would be wonderful, but we, unfortunately, generally speaking to my knowledge, we don't have any magical recipes for anything probably. So prevention works on a continuum. We have prevention continuum of care, and it works the same whether we talk about physical health or our mental health, health is health. So we have primary prevention. Primary prevention is what can we do prior to an onset of an illness? So it's identifying and, um, and uh, recognizing what are the risk factors at both individual level, but and also at the workplace organizational level. And so identifying risk factors so we reduce them, but and also identifying and building protective factors at the individual level and at the organizational workplace level. Secondary prevention, there is an onset. There is a risk involved. Maybe the symptoms might be mild to moderate. So here, of course, ongoing education. It could be peer support. It could be maybe um, seeking help from a healthcare professional, maybe some work accommodation. Once again, any intervention at both individual level and at organizational level. Tertiary prevention, here the symptoms might be moderate to severe, so we might need maybe disability management, rehabilitation, and the goal is to reduce symptoms and improve functioning. And sometimes there could be the need for work accommodation, definitely evidence-based treatment, professional help, and so on. So we really need to appreciate prevention works on a continuum of care. The first thing here from an individual, um, our individualized approach to care, how to build our own individualized resiliency is recognize your range of thoughts and emotions and their normal reactions. We, really, we might feel powerless, we might feel helpless. Um, these are normal reactions. So always knowing that you're not alone. And it's true we're not alone. That is also why we are having the talk right now, right? If, if we had never heard before, uh, if people were alone, we wouldn't even be talking about this. So normalizing the, those reactions. The number two is reaching out for support. Loved ones, family, healthcare professional, always reaching out for support. But it also it means that when we go home, 
and we want to talk about, you know, it could be our feeling and thinking. But and also when we are home to also practice sometimes what we call being off duty as well. Because when we are in a human care profession, in a human service profession, we go home, there's always this medical no, there's a kid, you know, the care approach again. And so it's the allowing the me time as well to, so to rest and the off duty as well, allowing ourselves for that. The other thing is catching ourselves anytime we might have a tendency to judge ourselves. That's super important. Self-kindness, now more than ever. Self-kindness and self-compassion is the relationship that we have with ourselves during very difficult times. So now it's very important. And actually when we practice, be kind to ourselves. Catching any negative self-talk or our tendency to judge ourselves not only helps us to open ourselves with ourselves and care for ourselves, but also helps us to be open with others and care for others. And it helps to minimize what we call burnout because burnout at a stage is like, I can't do anything. I don't care about myself or others that I don't, cannot do anything. So self-compassion becomes a very protective factor. Catching a negative self-talk, reframing them, identifying our positives, praising ourselves, appreciating our hard work and our achievement, regardless of the outcome. More often than not, we don't have full control or entire control over the outcome. Nevertheless, recognizing our hard work and achievement are positives. Self-care, tremendously important, not only about balanced diet and stretching exercises and any exercise, proper sleep, but you know, little things make a huge difference, especially for frontline workers. So it could be reminding, you know, to stay hydrated. You need to be hydrated. You need to do stretching exercises. And it's incredible how those little things, including stretching in between, let's say, shift, in between clients, there is always with stress is our body becomes tense. When we do any stretching and we hydrate, it opens actually, our, it widens our emotions and our thinking and our thoughts and we make healthier decisions, healthier plan of action. Um, and there are a variety of other techniques, slowing down our breathing, practicing mindfulness so that we can bring ourselves to the here and now, distinguishing our worry. These are the current worries and we want to distinguish them with potential worries. So worries that are in the future might happen, never happen. And that's because often with anxiety, there could be a lot of worries. What if this? What if that? And we all know what happens. We start with one what if, which is okay, but quickly that one what if turns into like a catastrophic scene, scene, right? And also the sensory grounding, which helps us to be more mindful and to connect us with the here and now. So sensory grounding is using our senses. What do I see here? my body touches, the sense of uh, smell, or taste, and we're using our sen senses to bring ourselves back to the moment and to the reality. The more connected we are to the reality, the better the decisions and we feel more grounded. And it could be anything. Um, walking outside and I want to feel the fresh air touching my face. I want to listen to the birds, the flowers. I want to have water. I want to feel the water and catching our breath. Any of those, again, can really help to, for the nervous system to, to really uh, calm down more. Okay, so it sounds like a lot of this then is just really just recognizing, um, well, prevention, obviously, that's a holistic approach, you know, like you said, it's the stretching, it's the drinking, these are, these are things that we should be doing for a multitude of reasons in our life, not just to prevent PTSD, uh, but those things all certainly help. Um, from, a, from the standpoint of the person who's at home supporting this person who is dealing with very, a very stressful um, work environment, is there something we can do? Like, you know, you said about, you know, uh, being, um, 
the, the off the duty off duty the person at home can make sure that they really are off duty uh, are there other things that we can do to help yeah, so, so of course, if, if let's say we come home and there are worries and so on, to be able to feel comfortable sharing the thoughts and our emotions. And sometimes we don't need to hear any coping or problem solving. Sometimes it's just talking about it. So often it's really listening is very helpful, asking how we can help, and also appreciating that also families have their own anxieties as well, right? So in terms of them also getting sick as well. So anything that might create also anxiety on their part to be able to problem solve it to come up to an agreement and in that case that can very help very much help to reduce the anxiety and the pressure as well and engaging it could be sometimes in meaningful fun activities as well that is not always conversation around COVID or conversation around the hard work it could just be nice 20 minute walk outside talking about as I mentioned the birds and the flowers it could be anything right so you know I, I, I feel like you know we hear this a lot we're on unprecedented times and you know we've never seen anything like this but when it comes to a front frontline workers um, PTSD is something that's been discussed for years do you feel that they are prepared however for the sheer volume of PTSD that's going to come out of this uh, or should they be preparing more for that uh, in terms of offering uh, more counselors what do you think the future holds sort of for these um, for the, the, the organizations that take care of these frontline workers? Well, I think that, you know, prior to the pandemic, I think that when it comes to uh, our mental health needs are extremely important and funding for our mental health needs, ensuring really access to care, access to resources, treatment with expertise, very important. We know that even prior to the pandemic, the data we had always is $51 billion annually in Canada is around uh, mental health care costs. Over 35% could be related to absenteeism, presenteeism. Um, sick leave, short-term and long-term disability. And the mental health disabilities, the costs are also greater than physical health disabilities because of the high risk of recurrence and the longer duration. Clearly now, we know with the pandemic, everything is of course changing. We do know that the mental health needs are on the rise. Um, and I think that any ongoing service, ongoing research is very helpful so that to help towards the better prevention and definitely better interventions. Certainly, um, we always want to ensure there is great access to care, access to resources and expertise. Um, there is also, we know, not only in-person treatment, there is also telemedicine and virtual therapy. So that's always important for people to know actually Prior to the pandemic, we did have, uh, let's say, what we call telemedicine or virtual therapy, especially to, because not everyone is able to attend in person for one million reasons. It could be distance, it could be pain, it could be injury, it could be fatigue, one million um, reasons. But now, actually, it's with the pandemic that people have realized more and more that, oh, virtual therapy does exist. Yes, it always existed. Now, even more so, of course. And so for people to know there is in-person, but there is also virtual care and telemedicine, and it is effective. We have effective treatment available. And so for very much reaching out for help, there are great resources out there, great um, reliable websites that people can, can reach to, um, to, get, um, to gain access to care. Okay, if you could you um, take a couple of minutes then and expand on some of the resources, uh, are there books you recommend uh, for, for frontline workers right now that they can access and should be accessing? 
Yes. So there, so there are great, great reliable resources. There is definitely CAMH, so Center for Addiction and Mental Health. The CAMH website has great resources. There is the Canadian Psychological Association website as well. Tremendous, wonderful resources as well. Ontario Psychological Association website as well. Um, so there are variety, and there is also Anxiety Canada as well. So I would definitely... Um, start with those resources because they have not only great in terms of self-help and readings, but in also in terms of where to go to gain access to help. Okay, excellent. So as a, you obviously are a specialist in PTSD, do you have any predictions of where this is all going to take us? Uh, you know, I would um, love to, you know, provide any, any great and solid predictions. Um, I think that, you know, yes, we do know that mental health needs are on the rise. I think that we always want to know for everyone is you're not alone. There's great help available. There's treatment available. And right now, because of the increasing uh, telemedicine and virtual therapy, of course, we want to build and to ensure access to care, access to resources. And as you know, you have greatly outlined prevention. Prevention is key. The earlier, the better. Um, sometimes, you know, what people say, they come to me, they say, you know what? I'm not sure if that's a problem. That's not a problem. Can I talk to you? I say, absolutely. Tell me what it is. And I tell them, I said, no, you know what? You're going to be okay. I think give it another one week or two and then we get back. Sometimes we're like, you know what? Let's talk about a few things here, certain strategies and skills. And there's not even diagnosis, but it's just for like a great prevention. But as I mentioned, it's primary, secondary, tertiary. But for people to know it's a normal, everyone goes through that, never hesitate to seek help. Excellent. So if people want to know more about you, um, where can they find you? Um, um, thank you for that. Um, I don't know. So, you know, they can Google me, Katy Kamkar, and uh, they can find me. I'm on Twitter. And so it's a DR. K-A-T-Y-K-M-K-R. I'm also on LinkedIn, Dr. Kathy Kamkar, and uh, they can easily uh, reach out to me. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for all you do. Hey, listeners. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. She said she enjoyed hurting things that can't fight back. And that is a disturbing view into the mind of a murderer in such a dirtbag. Yeah, that's not even strong enough words. This is totally a recipe for disaster. And not to justify whatever is going to happen, but you can totally understand and see how this would be in the works. If you were only to look at what she did later on and not know any of that history, she would appear like off the wall crazy. Oh, 100%. Because we're not even close to getting to the end yet. But you can just see this pattern and all this kind of stuff developing in her, which is what we're here for. We're digging deep. Join us each Thursday as we unearth the dirt bags that live among us and the motives buried there. Hope you join us as we exhume the truth. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. 
writingclassclub.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.